New Year. Uh, glad to uh, have you here with us this morning. If you're a guest, uh, I want to welcome you. I'm glad that you are spending time with us uh, this morning. And I want to remind you of a couple things before we get into Acts chapter 1 this morning. Uh, one, if you are a guest with us, or if this is your church home and you've been here for a long time, we have these cards in the back of the seat back that's in front of you called Connect Cards. In New Year, let me just kind of remind you what that's all about. These Connect Cards, uh, our church, uh, we are uh, part of a kind of a movement called, we're an independent Christian church. What that means is, is that the church body elects elders to lead the church. And so these elders are then tasked with shepherding and taking care of uh, our church family. And they take that very seriously. One of the ways uh, that they try to take care of our church, in addition to the name tags that we're going to do every once in a while and making sure people learn each other and that this is a place where you can be known, is that Connect card. Uh, It's good to know that you are here, but on the back of that card, there is a spot for a prayer request. So maybe you're carrying something from 2019, and you're carrying it into 2020, and it's just a burden. Well, you're looking ahead in this year, and you can just see there's some difficulty coming your way. Well, you can write that prayer request on that card. That card will get uh, taken, and all of those prayer requests will get typed up and sent to our elders. Our elders meet every single week of the month, three Saturdays and one Monday of every month. And when we get together... Uh, We get that list, and every week we pray for the prayer requests that you put on that card. And so we want you to know uh, that if you want to put a prayer request on that card, I can give you my word uh, that we are going to pray for you. Uh, We're going to pray for what's going on in your life. Uh, One of the other things to make you aware of, whether this is uh, you're new here or uh, this would be your church home, would be a gathering that we call Starting Point. A starting point, uh, in addition to the place in the lobby, is also a class that meets every other month during the year. It's a, it's a place you can come and ask questions, learn about the history of our church, our beliefs, how to become, what does membership look like, how does it look to get involved. It's a time where myself, uh, some of the other staff, some of our elders can all be in the room with you. Uh, there's child care, there's a home-cooked meal provided, uh, which, just so you know, uh, it's not uh, me in charge. Um, so we have a great volunteer, Angela, who makes a home-cooked meal for each of these gatherings. And uh, if it was up to me, you'd have stale dominoes, so you should be uh, uh, pretty happy about that. But you can sign up online and plan to join us January the 19th right after this service. So you just come to church. Uh, I'd recommend you come to a class. Then you come to church, and then you stay uh, for a little bit longer for that meal and that time uh, to be together. So uh, just to make you aware of those things, let's pray together, and we will jump into Acts chapter 1. Father, we believe that you are good, that you move powerfully in our lives. And my prayer today is as we open your word to begin this new year, this new sermon series, that you would uh, give us ears to hear afresh your word, that you would speak to us through the power of your spirit, that you would uh, take your word and penetrate our hearts and create change that is only possible if it's from you. And we pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen. So I was on vacation, I was on a break uh, here recently, and I uh, was able to read an article. I read an article about this lady here. Her name is Lola. Lola was born in the Philippines, out in the country, outside of a major city in the Philippines, and grew up very, very poor. As a matter of fact, that's an understatement. To say that she was poor uh, is something we can't really wrap our minds around. She grew up just uh, around the time of World War II, and just to get food on the table at the end of the day was considered... Uh, a really good day for her family, okay? It was just really, really difficult. Make sure this is out of the way. I want to be able to see people. Thanks, Ben. 11 o'clock Christmas Eve service. I just want to make you aware I'm going to call him out on everything all year after that, all right? But Lola grew up in the Philippines, and uh, she, 
she was very, very poor, so her parents wanted a better life for her. And so they made an arrangement with a pig farmer. This pig farmer had a couple of pigs and uh, looked like if they were to do an arranged marriage that uh, at least she'd have food on her table and a roof over her head. But Lola did not like this idea because this pig farmer was double her age. And so it looked bleak, uh, her future. It didn't look good with or without this person uh, in her life, which made her kind of a sitting duck for a lieutenant in the U.S. military who was stationed in the Philippines, uh, met Lola, met her family, and made an offer to her family. And he said, if you will come and live with me and my family, I will take care of all of your needs. You just come and be a nanny to help me take care of my, at the time, one child. Uh, And then the family would grow. So Lola liked that opportunity. She took that opportunity instead of the other one, only she had no clue that she was signing up not for uh, a position as a nanny, but as a slave. And so it started out in the Philippines. The family grew. They had more children, moved to the United States uh, eventually, and she was mistreated. She was oftentimes verbally abused, physically abused. And they gave her a place to stay, sort of. They made her sleep in a room in the house where the dirty clothes piled up. And she had to sleep on the dirty clothes to remind her that she was to wash them the next day. Did they give her food? A little bit. She was allowed to eat the scraps and the leftovers if the family had any at the end of a meal. This went on for years. A little boy that was born into the family from his earliest memories, the one who wrote the article I read, said, I remember very vividly this being wrong. This is not okay. This is not how human beings should be treated. But he felt powerless because he's just a boy in the family. And so until he got to an age where he could move out and kind of start his own life, he just felt like he couldn't do anything about it. And so he finally did, though, when he got out and got on his own. He got back in contact with Lola and made her an offer. He said, Lola, you can finally leave that house. I want you to come and live with me. And if you'll move in with me, I'm going to take care of all of your needs. And I want to reassure you of something. You're not leaving one bad situation for another bad situation. I want the rest of the time you have left alive to be good. And I want to take care of your needs. And so Lola, uh, through interaction, decides to make that uh, move. And so she moves into this uh, Alex's house. He had a room built onto the outside of his house, and she was going to live there. And when she got there, he did a couple things. One, he said, this is where you're going to be able to live, and you come and go as you please. He gave her a bank card and said, hey, I want you to be able to buy things for yourself. I want you to take care of your needs. And whatever time you have left, I want it to be spent good. I'm going to do whatever I can to make your life good. Then he sat her down and made sure that she understood him, and he went real slow, and he made sure that, and he writes that he just wanted to make sure that she understood everything completely. And he said, I don't want you cooking, and I don't want you cleaning. I want you to enjoy the rest of your life. And he said he went slow, taught her how to use the bank card, made sure she understood. The conversation ended, and do you know what Lola did? She stood up, went to the closet, got the cleaning supplies, started cleaning, went into the kitchen, got the supplies, and tried to make a meal. And Alex said it was a very long road between he and Lola. But I think most of us understand that, because change, real change, it's really difficult. Change is hard. And if change is going to be real, if change is going to settle in, it's got to have a real reason behind it. I mean, you've been living your life one way for so long, this way. I've been doing this for so long. And and now someone gives me this invitation to change the way that I'm living. And it sounds really good. And you might even start to change a little bit. But the temptation to go back to the closet to get the supplies is always there. Change is hard. Change is difficult. And I think most of us would agree, if we are going to change, it has to have a very real, sustainable truth behind that change if it's going to last. 
This is kind of the backdrop for the book of Acts. As we begin this journey through Acts, it's going to confront us on a lot of levels. Some of you in the room would uh, possibly say that you're not a Christian. I've not made a decision to follow Jesus. I've never been baptized into Christ. I'm not a follower of Jesus. And you might say that. Well, the book of Acts, as if you stay with us through this study, it's going to bring to the front of your mind constantly uh, this, this invitation to reconsider Jesus. This invitation to reconsider who he is and what following him might actually mean for your life. But there are others in the room that say, I've been following Jesus for a while. Maybe you're either a baby Christian or you've been following Jesus for quite some time. And the book of Acts is going to confront you too because it's going to cause you again and again to reconsider how seriously you took his invitation to follow me. And whether or not you really took him up on that offer. Whether or not you really are following him. Because change is hard. We're going to be confronted with whether or not we're living this out or whether or not we're not living this out. And we're going to be called to make some changes. And the writer, Luke of Acts, Jesus himself, they know change is difficult. I think that change requires a significant reason behind it, a significant truth. And I think the most significant reason to change anything in your life is the person of Jesus. I mean, this one man and his group of followers have had a bigger impact on the course of human history than any other event, any other person in all of human history, and continues to impact it. I think you could take Jesus and line him up against any event and any human being in all of human history, and they won't even come close to having the impact for the good that Jesus has had on the history of our world. As a matter of fact, I think you could say that everything before the coming of Jesus pointed to the need for Jesus to come, and everything since has been impacted either directly or indirectly by his coming. I mean, Jesus is the center of it all. He is the number one reason. And this is why Luke was so convinced that he had to write all of this down. He does this orderly account. He wants to write out all of this stuff uh, for his friend Theophilus. Because as he began to do the research, Luke learned, if this is true, and I believe that it is, it's changing all of human history forever. Nothing will ever be the same because of Jesus. And so he desired to write it all down. And we're going to take this year over, uh, it's going to be sporadic and and continuous all at the same time. And it's going to be a lot of fun. We're going to go through all of the book of Acts this year in 2020, studying this history book to learn the beginning of this movement that changed all of human history. And here's the lesson I think we're going to learn over and over and over again through the book of Acts. It's this, that the church at its inception was a movement, not an institution. See, the church at its inception was a movement, not an institution. It was not intended to be a place where you have programs and you come and you are comfortable and you just kind of sit and it meets all your needs. It was a movement. As a matter of fact, the word church in your New Testament, which does in fact show up in your New Testament, is the word ecclesia. And it means a gathering, a gathering of people around a conviction, around an idea. They were convicted around this idea that Jesus had come. He had lived the life they couldn't live, died the death they deserved to die, resurrected from the dead, and had called them to live a purposeful life. And they were convicted around that idea, this ecclesia, this gathering of people that shared this conviction, and it was a movement. And here's the thing about movements. Movements always move. They always move. They never sit still. And so here's the danger for the church in all ages, no matter what period of church history you study and what period of church history you predict into the future. The danger for the church is to stop moving. The danger for the church is to become an institution where people just simply come and attend. The danger of the church is to become a program-based place that just meets the needs and, and provides services for people and stops moving forward with the mission that God has given to his bride. 
And so that's the question for us as we start out this series this morning. Are we, as an ecclesia, as a gathering of people, that gather around this conviction that Jesus is who he said he is and has called us to live this way, are we moving forward or have we stopped moving? Are we simply running an institution or are we a part of a movement, a movement of God? And the question for you as an individual is very similar. Is the church simply a place that you attend on a Sunday morning? We've said this time and time again. Is it a seat that you sit in to watch people perform for you on Sunday? Or is it a gathering? Are you become a part of a gathering, a group of people that are a part of a movement, knowing that God has called you to a certain role in that movement as well? I hope this plays out in the rest of uh, the sermon, but I am convinced that the next great revival of the church in the United States is going to come in the marketplace, not the church building. When everyday Christians get a hold of the mission God has called them to, and it spreads. Now, we're going to study this history book, and Luke begins to lay out the history for us about how this movement got its genesis, its origins. And he starts in Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had, been given, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Pause there. We're going to get through the first 11 verses. We're going to go slow. If you're someone who likes to underline or highlight, I would underline and highlight verse 3. It's pretty pivotal. Dr. Luke, last month we did a series for Advent, and one of the sermons was based in the Gospel of Luke. And so I went over this history a little bit, but I want to catch those of you up that weren't there. Luke is a medical doctor, and he's writing a detailed account to his friend Theophilus. In Luke chapter 1, he actually addresses Theophilus as most excellent Theophilus. That was a title, indicating Theophilus had some sort of clout or standing probably some money, and he was saying, hey, Luke, I, wanna, I don't have a lot of confidence in everything I've heard about Jesus. And so I want you to go and, and do this detailed account. I want you to do all this research. And so Luke sets out as a medical doctor to do an orderly account. This is what he says in Luke chapter 1. I want to do all the research, all the journalistic research. I want to gather all of it together. I want to answer as many questions. No rock is going to go unturned. I want every detail I can get. And then I want to put them in an orderly fashion. And then he tells us why he's doing all of this work, both in the book of Luke and in the book of Acts. He tells us, so you, Theophilus, so that you, Theophilus, might have confidence in what you have come to be told about Jesus. Now, when he gets to Acts chapter 1, he's saying, hey, Theophilus, I know I wrote that first part. Now I'm going to tell you all about this movement that took place of God after the resurrection of Jesus, so that you may have confidence in what you've heard about Jesus. It's really true. And instantly, in in Acts chapter 1, I think that Theophilus can relate to the apostles because in verse 3, Luke tells us that Jesus appeared to them for 40 days. For 40 days in order to provide for the apostles many convincing proofs that he had in fact resurrected. Over and over again, he appears to them to prove to them, yes, I actually did resurrect. And I think Theophilus, in his lack of confidence, could relate to the apostles in their lack of confidence. See, this, this is, it's fascinating to me when you look at this. When, when Jesus appears to the apostles, why 40 days? Why over and over again? One of the things that stands out to me immediately when you begin to study this is that Jesus is very repetitive, and he shows up on multiple different places. You get it in Luke chapter 24, when he first resurrects, he appears to the women. 
The women then go and they tell all the disciples, and the disciples are like, yeah, we don't really believe you. We need to see this for ourselves. And so then Jesus, knowing that, during that 40 days, appears to them multiple times as well to give them some confidence. And so what does he do? He appears on the road to Emmaus. Hey, guys, it's me. It's me. I'm really alive. Still didn't quite click. So he appears to them in the upper room, and you can read about this at the end of Luke's gospel. He appears in the upper room, and when he shows up on the scene, he looks at them, and he says, hey, peace, peace be unto you. I really did resurrect. And the text says they're scared out of their minds, like terrified, partially because he just walked through a locked door, okay? But he's in the room with them, and they're like, it must be a ghost. It must not be real. And he's like, no, I've actually resurrected. I'll prove it to you. Give me a fish. Like a fish? Like, you just made lunch. Give me a fish. He takes the fish, and he eats it right in front of them. And after swallowing and digesting some of the food, he's like, could a ghost do that? No, because I've actually resurrected. Over and over again, he has to appear to them numerous times. And Luke says it's because they needed really convincing proofs because he knew that change, real change, is hard. That even if you're told, even if you're invited into something, you might take a few steps in that direction, but the temptation to go back to the closet and look for the cleaning supplies is there. And any real change is going to take time, and it's going to need a very uh, real truth behind it. And you're going to need to be reminded of that truth over and over and over again. So for 40 days, over and over and over again, Jesus just affirms over and over and over again, I did resurrect, and this changes everything. And for them, it was hard. They didn't believe it at first. You never read in the gospel accounts, you never read in the book of Acts where Jesus is resurrected and he shows up on the scene and all of a sudden the disciples are like, oh man, have we been waiting for you. Like you told us like so many times that when you died, you were going to resurrect and we totally believed you. And so as soon as we saw you die, we just knew it was a matter of time and we were eagerly waiting for you to show up. No, they'd gone back to fishing because they didn't believe it when he said it and they didn't believe it even when he did it. They needed to be met over and over and over again where they were and convinced over and over and over again that it was true because change is hard. You see, Jesus met them at a worldview level. A worldview is a map in your head that helps you make all of the decisions that you make. I've I've had the privilege of teaching a worldview class for the last six years, and I've taught it here at New Hope, and and Ryan and I did a long class. And what I've learned about worldview is this. It, it, It is the way in which you answer life's big questions. Where did I come from? Why am I here? How did the world start? Where where is everything going? Why, why, why? You answer all of the big questions in life, and it affects every other decision that you make in your life. That's your worldview. And here's what I've learned in my time teaching this and interacting with people and just getting the honor of being a pastor and working with people is this. To change your worldview is incredibly hard. To be seeing things one way for so long and then have this invitation of Jesus to see things differently, it's really, really difficult. And Jesus understood that. And this is what Luke is telling Theophilus. Theophilus, I know that things are hard for you to grab onto, but let me give you some more proof over and over again so that you can have confidence to know that what you believe is true. And he continues, verse 4. He says, While staying with them, Jesus ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he he went, behold, two men stood by 
them with white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who has taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. It's really important. This key, Jesus tells him right away, he says, I want you to stay in Jerusalem. And this is another way that he is connecting his gospel to the beginning of the church. It's, it's almost the exact same command that Jesus gives them at the end of the gospel of Luke. Stay in Jerusalem. Wait for the Holy Spirit to come that you heard me tell you about. I want you to stay. I can't afford you guys messing this thing up. Stay in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit shows up. And he, and he orders them. Now, why Jerusalem? Well, David, unplanned, last week, it was a, a standalone sermon, anything you want to preach on, and he preaches on the importance of Jerusalem to the, the people in the Old Testament. He says, you stay in Jerusalem because it was the center of their universe. It's everything that they knew. And he said, you stay here, and when the Holy Spirit comes, comes upon you, you're going to be my witnesses, and from there, it's going to go to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That phrase, come upon you, and he says, I want you to wait for the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit, when he comes, is going to give you the power to be my witness. Here's the thing. To be a witness. Verse 8 is the most pivotal verse in the entire book of Acts. As you study through Acts over the course of the next year, I want you to continually come back to Acts chapter 1, verse 8. It is the most important verse because the book is all about how the Holy Spirit causes God's people to move. And he says, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you're going to get power. And that power is going to help you be my witness. And you can be a witness two different ways. One, it's who you're becoming. I'm becoming who Jesus wants me to become. And then it's what you're doing. Here's what I'm doing with my life to witness to the goodness of God. And he says, you can't do that in your own power. That only comes through the power of the Holy Spirit that lives in you. He gives you that a power. And so go wait for him to come upon you. Now, that phrase, come upon in your New Testament, it's used nine times in the New Testament, seven times in the book of Acts, and almost always talks about an act of violence, meaning they came upon him, they beat him up, they, they, you know, they beat that guy up. But here, in Acts chapter 1 and Acts chapter 10, it's referencing the Holy Spirit. And what it literally means is an unquestionable control of the recipient. So he says, wait for the Holy Spirit to come. Unquestionable control of your life, meaning when the Holy Spirit comes, everything is going to change. The way you see the world the way you interact with people, the way you talk, the things that you think about. Your entire worldview is going to change when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Now picture this scene, Acts chapter 1. Jesus says all of this to them. He begins to ascend away. He says, you're going to be my witnesses. And when the Holy Spirit gives you the power, you're going to be my witnesses in all the world. And they're looking up thinking, Jesus, Jesus, hey, do you know that you just said the whole world? Do you know how big the whole world is, Jesus? And he's floating away saying, yep, I can see it all from here. You have no idea. It's a really big world, and it's going to be the Holy Spirit's power, not yours. And they're just looking. It's fascinating. The angels come, and they say, guys, it's, it's time to move. It's time to move forward. The church doesn't sit still. The church is a movement. Let's go. It's time to get going. See, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, it changes everything. When you're baptized in the Christ, the Bible says in Acts chapter 2, you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. When you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, he gives you the ability to be a witness for Jesus, both in who the Spirit's going to shape you into becoming and what you're going to go and do as you represent Jesus. This is such a pivotal idea. It changes everything about you, your whole life. The direction of your life is now going to be completely going in another direction. But here's the thing, change is hard. And the temptation, the temptation is going to be to go back to the closet and get the cleaning supplies. I came across a quote by Charles Spurgeon, a very famous uh, preacher, and preaching to his church, he said these words. He said, if Jesus is precious to you, 
You will not only be able to keep your good news to yourself, you will be whispering it into your child's ear. You will be telling it to your husband. You will be earnestly imparting it to your friend. Without the charms of eloquence, you will be more than eloquent. Your heart will speak and your eyes will flash as you talk of his sweet love. Every Christian here is either a missionary or an imposter. You either try to spread abroad the kingdom of Christ or else you do not love him at all. It cannot be that there is a high appreciation for Jesus and a totally silent tongue about him. If you really know Christ, you are like one that has found honey. You will call others to taste of its sweetness. You are like the beggar who has discovered an endless supply of food. You must go tell the hungry crowd that you have found Jesus and you are anxious that they should find him too. Every Christian is a missionary or an imposter. Movements move. They don't all move at the same pace, with the same rhythms. Some people have certain gifts. Other people have other gifts. It's not so much what you're doing, although that is important, but what's more important is that you're doing it, is that you're taking a step, is that you're moving forward with the kingdom, allowing the Holy Spirit to lead you to be a part of God's kingdom. That's why this year we're going to be launching the next part of our vision as a church. About three years ago, when I became uh, the lead minister here, we got together, we launched this new vision around this phrase, but really around the idea of discipleship. And the phrase was, disciples making disciples. That's who we want to be. We launched classes to teach what we meant by that. We started groups. We offered trainings throughout the last few years to help you better understand what it meant to be a disciple who made disciples. We wanted that movement. And what we've learned over these last three years is that while that's been an incredible journey, we needed some sort of a gauge to help us understand how, how we're doing with that. How well are we making disciples, both as individuals and as an ecclesia, as a gathering, as a church family. And so uh, we prayed, we discussed it over a long period of time, and the idea came from lay people. It did not come from anyone on staff or anyone in leadership. It just came from someone who had a heart to help us with this. So we took the idea, we, we prayed, we discussed it, and, and we're ready now to, to launch it. It's based on this text uh, as well as another text, but Acts 1 saying, hey, the Spirit's leading us to move. But, but Jesus offered an invitation to every one of us and us as a church in Matthew chapter 4, verse 19, when he said, hey, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And so we're going to launch our head, heart, and hands. It's the part of our, and you're not going to see a big splash about it. We're not doing a whole marketing campaign. We're just going to include it in everything that we're doing to help us understand how well we're making disciples. And it follows this text really well. Let's break it down this way. And Jesus said to them, follow me. That's the head. Follow me. So it's everything that you're learning about Jesus. And you can rest assured that we will always preach through books of the Bible here because our goal is for you to hear from the Word of God, not just from us. We're not here to entertain you. And so all throughout the year, we're gonna, this year, you're going to hear from the book of Acts. We're going to go to the Old Testament as we study uh, Jesus on every page in the summer. And, and you're going to focus on books of the Bible. You're going to hear from me and David and Ryan and Ben locked in. Where are you at? You're locked in now. He will preach at least once this year because he gave us an 11 o'clock Christmas Eve service. All right? <laughs> But you're going you're gonna to hear from all of us as we just bring God's word. You can learn God's word. It's your head. It's, it's what you're learning. We're going to have awesome classes that started. There's classes both in the 930 hour. There's a parenting class going on right now in the 11 o'clock uh, service as well where people are teaching. They're going to be teaching and so that you can learn God's word. You can do it with podcasts. You can do it with good books that you're reading. You can do it with your small group. You're going to be learning. And that's awesome. And you're going to grow because you're learning. But you have to learn in your knowledge. Grow in your knowledge. That's why Jesus said, follow me. Learn my ways. That's an invitation from a rabbi to a student. Follow me. Please come and learn my ways. But here's the deal. If all you did was reduce discipleship to Bible study, showing up on a Sunday morning and doing a couple Bible studies, 
then your head's going to get too big, and the rest of your body's not going to be proportional. You're going to look like these mascots running in a race, right? <laughs> That's going to be you spiritually, just trying to keep your balance. Why? Because you're like a Pharisee. You've just got all kinds of knowledge, but you're not doing anything with it. That's where the heart comes in. Jesus said, follow me, learn my ways, and I will make you. That's transform- transformation. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, I will make you. I will transform your life. I will take all that you're learning and I will put it into your, and it will shape and mold who you are and what you're doing. It's important. But if all you ever did was have the heart, you'd have a bunch of intentions and not know anything of what to do. That's why you need the head and you need the heart. And if all you did was have the heart, you'd think, I don't have anything left to learn. I've just kind of learned it all. And your heart will get hard. So you need to continually learn. You need to continually be transformed, but then you have to do something about it, and that's the hands. And Jesus said, I will make you fishers of men. Follow me the head. I will make you the hands, fishers of men, the, the hands. I will make you the heart, fishers of men, the hands. It's what you do. And so you come, and you walk into a room, and your first objection as a, a disciple of Jesus is to say, I'm a disciple of Jesus. I am here to serve, not to be served. I'm here to give. I'm here to sacrifice. I'm here to make a difference for Jesus. But here's the thing. If all you ever did was see a need, meet a need, and only serve, 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 you're going to be a justice warrior who's all in it for the action but never the transformation. See, there's a balance. Movements need balance. Movements are all of this as we are disciples who make disciples moving forward. Let me tell you why this is important to me. Um, I'm going to use an example. If you've been at New Hope for a while, you know I love talking about my kids. I love my kids. I am, I, the way I would say it is this. I am utterly fascinated by them, like all of it. Every stage that they're in and all that they're experiencing, I am fascinated by my children. And my wife and I made a decision before our kids were, before we had kids that we're going to disciple them in our home. We're going to be very intentional with this. But I'll tell you, as we've learned as parents, as many of you have learned, there are times, seasons even, where we have reduced discipleship to the head part in our home. Let's do devotions, memorize scripture, all these things are good. They're really good, but you got to head, 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 head. Learn, 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 learn. And then recently, we've, we've had some good discussions about now we, we really need it to be, and this is where this can individually affect you and as a church affect us. I need to see how that knowledge that we're giving them is changing who they're becoming, the decisions that they're making as they sort through things, as they wrestle with things. I want to see how their heart's being shaped and ultimately what they're going to do with their life. See the head, the heart, and the hand. One example of that would be uh, with each of my children, we've invited other people in to speak into their lives, primarily grandpa. I know I'm spoiled uh, with that. I get that. But with each of our kids, so my oldest, Caleb, then there's Abby, there's Luke, and there's Noah. With Caleb and Abby, and now, right now, this is going on with Luke, but so with three of them so far, when they're getting close to this decision that they want to become a Christian, I didn't want it to just be head. And so grandpa got recruited. And now grandpa, with each of them, has taken them out six weeks in a row. And he'll take them out, and he'll just spend time with them, engage things and, and knowledge and heart so that they're hearing. Man, everybody's concerned. They'll come to church, and people are talking about it. And I know that they're teaching Bible in the back. And so all of this is coming together with people that are saying, this isn't just about what you know. This is about who you're becoming and what you're going to do with your life. This is everything. It's so incredibly important. As we're disciples who make disciples, it needs to affect our head, our heart, and our hands, what we do. Let me close this way. Uh, every January, I'm reminded of a conversation I had with a guy who uh, was a lot older than me. And uh, he kind of spoke right through me uh, at one point. And he, he said this, and I'll never forget it. And it, for whatever reason, at the end of the year, maybe that's when we had the conversation. I really don't remember. But this always comes to my mind, and I wrestle with it. And he looked at me, and he said, hey, Rob, much older gentleman. He said, when you get to the end of your life, which he, he was older, your, your biggest regret 
I promise you, your biggest regret will not be that you didn't get a great car. And and your biggest regret, I promise, it's not going to be that you didn't get to live in the house you wanted to live in. It won't be that you didn't have your dream job. He kind of went on a list. I I promise you, it won't be that you didn't get to go on all these trips that you wanted to go on or that you didn't get uh, everything perfectly the way you wanted. He goes, Rob, this is what I'll never forget. He said, if you're not intentional, when you get to the end of your life, your biggest regret will be that you didn't live up to the potential that God had for your life to impact his kingdom. And I don't want to get to the end of my life and regret not allowing him to use my life to advance his kingdom. And I don't want to get to the end of my life and realize that I didn't prepare my kids to let their lives be used for his kingdom. And I don't want to get to the end of my life and realize that as an ecclesia, as a church, Instead, I want to get to the end of my life and know that myself and my family and our church allowed ourselves to be used by God through the power of his spirit to advance his kingdom. Let's pray.